We are continuing in our series looking at meals that Jesus had as recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. So far we have had the meal of grace, Jesus' meal with Matthew the tax collector and other sinners that Matthew gathered around him. The meal of community, the meal at the Pharisee's house where the woman came and anointed Jesus' feet as he ate at that table. The meal of satisfaction where 5,000 were fed by this little boy's lunch. And then last week, a meal of mission. Another meal at the Pharisee's house, this time when Jesus talked about the great banquet. Today we are looking at a meal of salvation. I think I've got the wrong clicker here, Peter. Here we go. The meal of salvation. Before I started my ministry at at Moorabark Baptist, um, I worked for Pioneers uh, for a time as heading up their member care team. So the the team, thanks Catherine, the team that um, was responsible for providing pastoral care for missionaries um, around the world. And often we would um, go and attend conferences, area conferences where missionaries gathered from around our area to one place for a week of ministry, a week of training and equipping and supporting each other and we would go and provide pastoral care to the missionaries from Australia who were at that conference. And one of the last conferences I went to was in Thailand. Um, And the opening um, dinner at this conference, I I don't really remember what the food was. It was in Thailand so the food would have been good. They had a great meal. Everyone gathered together for this, this meal But the thing that was memorable was what happened after the meal. As the meal was finishing, people came along and took all the the, um, plates and things away from the tables and then came and brought in um, loaves of bread and jugs of wine and grape juice. And then we spent the remainder of that time in that banquet area around the tables telling our favourite stories about Jesus just reflecting on who Jesus was to us. Stories in the Bible that we felt, this is what I love about Jesus, this story here. Or things that Jesus had done for us. And as the bread and the juice and wine was passed around the table, we celebrated Jesus' death. We talked about what he had done for us on the cross. And for me, that was the, the, the closest I've ever been to experiencing communion as it was recorded for us in Acts. The first century Christians, as they gathered and celebrated communion. Today, communion has become very um, ritualised. People unfamiliar with church will come to a a church gathering like this where we're celebrating communion and think, this is really weird. They have a meal and it's a tiny little cracker and they drink out of a tiny little cup in quietness usually. Before COVID, we would have communion and it would be, um, you know, the little juice, little jar of juice and an unusual looking cracker. We've moved through COVID. uh, When we could meet again, we had communion and it was this two-in-one deal. You got a little cup with this impossible to tear off piece of plastic And on top of the cup was like cardboard that melted in your mouth 
and this little bit of juice that really had, I don't know what it was. Now we've moved to having communion back in glasses and um, little bits of cracker in these cupcake liners. Growing up in Churches of Christ, um, when both Glenda and I went to the same church as kids, um, communion bread was slices of bread cut up into one centimetre squares. Beautifully done. Fresh bread. But I preferred the Brethren method. I went to Brethren during my teenage years, open Brethren, and it was a big loaf of bread like this cob loaf, torn apart, and as it came around, you'd grab a chunk of this bread, not for a meal, but just it just had a different feel to it than a little tiny piece of bread or a cracker. A far cry to the vibrant meal that was with friends in the New Testament. In Luke 2, uh, sorry, Acts 2, uh, Luke says the celebration of the Lord's Supper in, in, the, in the Jerusalem church involved breaking breads in their, bread in their homes where they received the food with gladness. There's lots of it. And with generous hearts. We think of communion today as a solemn rite that we participate in in a service like this, in a building. In Jerusalem, the early followers of Jesus ate meals together in their homes, eating bread, drinking wine, remembering Jesus, celebrating the the community that he had brought them together through the cross. They They were joyous occasions. There were feasts with friends, shared with laughter and tears, prayers, stories. So this morning we're going to revisit the last supper Jesus had with his disciples recorded in the upper room where he instituted this feast that we call, we know of today as, as communion. Jesus and his disciples um, had arrived in Jerusalem. This was Jesus' final week. By Friday he would be crucified, he'd be dead. And Luke tells us that it was the time of the Passover. The first Passover, this meal where they were now replicating it throughout their history, the Jewish people. The first Passover was a meal eaten the night God rescued them from Egypt. Recorded in Exodus 12. And on that night, in preparation for that night, each family was required to take a flawless lamb and, and, and slaughter that lamb take its blood and paint it on the doorposts on the side of the door, on the lentil above. Then they roasted the lamb and ate it with unleavened bread. And that night the Lord passed over Egypt and as he passed over these houses with the blood on the doorposts, he passed over them. Those doors of the Egyptians that didn't have the blood, the firstborn in those houses were, were killed. And when this happened, Pharaoh finally agreed to let God's people go and they escaped. The sacrificed lamb rescued God's people from slavery and death, dying in its place. It's this event, way back in the very beginning of Israel's history, 
that is embodied in the Passover meal. And each year the nation would gather together as, as a nation, as a, as, a, as a community, and commemorate, reenact this saving story of the Exodus, God's redemption of his people that they would celebrate and remember through this meal. And the Passover became this identity-defining practice of the nation of Israel. Each Passover, children, it was was a a theological teaching tool. The children of the family had questions that they would ask. Why are we doing this? What do these things mean? And the head of the house would then explain the Exodus story through this meal represented by these different aspects of different food things. This is what's happening here in Luke. So back to the story in Luke. As I said, Luke tells us in verse 7 that this is the beginning, this is the Passover, and it's the day that the Passover lamb is to be sacrificed. The lamb was slain between 3 and 5 p.m. the day before the, the feast. And at 6 o'clock of that day, so a few hours after the lamb had been slain, the new day started. The Jews would gather for this Passover meal when this lamb would be eaten. Luke describes the preparation for the meal Jesus and his disciples are going to, um, to prepare for in verses 8. Um, my space here, we'll just change the page. Jesus sent Peter... And John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. And he replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, Make preparations there. Kind of sounds like a, a um, Jason Bourne script, doesn't it? There's a lot of secrecy in what's going on here. And the reason for that is Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that Judas was, was looking for a moment when Jesus was on his own, probably with his disciples, but in a place where they could, the, the authorities would then come and arrest Jesus. Jesus was a mole among the group of disciples in cahoots with the religious leaders who wanted to trap Jesus in a place and get rid of him. That, that was their goal. We see at the beginning of, of, of Luke chapter 22 um, that Judas has signed up for this job. I, I'll do it. I'll, I'll trap him. I'll get Jesus. So if Jesus had let all of the disciples know where this Passover meal was going to be in Jerusalem at this critical time, the authorities would have found out. The meal would never have happened. And we wouldn't be participating in this Lord's Supper today. So Jesus himself sets up this meal. Jesus does all the arrangement behind the scenes um, to get this meal happening and prepared, a place for it to be set up. He didn't tell anyone else until he told Peter and John and gave them the instructions where to go, 
who to see, what, what the sign would be to follow this man to this house where Jesus had arranged for the room to be made available. In ancient culture, men didn't carry clay pots around the city. Men carried animal skin pots of water. Only women carried clay pots. So a man carrying a clay pot as you walked into the city looking for, where's the man I need? Ah, there he is. That's the one carrying this unusual uh, situation where a man carrying this, this clay pot. If it was to take place in Jerusalem today, I'd be like going up to the city gates and here was a man sitting on the gate reading the woman's section of um, the Jerusalem Post. It was ah, obvious, this is the one. And they follow him just as Jesus had said and everything works out. Verse 13, the owner of the, of the house leads them up to this room, all furnished, all ready for them to sit down. The couches in this horseshoe shape that we've talked about, table in the centre, all ready for the feast to be got ready. Jesus' two most trusted disciples, his closest friends in that group, Peter and John, then head out to purchase this lamb that's going to be sacrificed. Go into the city, find the market where these animals are for sale, take it, take it to the, the temple. One of them would have slaughtered the animal, put the, the carcass on their shoulder, and then gone and found the rest of the things they needed to make this Passover meal. There's quite a, a range of things they needed to gather together for this meal. Took it back to the house, up to this room, put the lamb on to roast, got the room ready, and then as dusk falls, candles go on and they wait for Jesus and the disciples to come. They eventually come and start the meal. Now probably when we think of what that meal looked like, this is the, the picture that probably most represents for the world the Last Supper. Leonardo's um, 15th century Italian Renaissance image of what the Lord's Supper looks like. But as we have gone through these meals that Jesus had, nothing historical about this picture in reality. Jesus and the disciples would have been dressed in white. That was the clothes you wore to a Passover meal. And not sitting at tables, but reclining on couches around the table in the centre of the room. We come to verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, verse 16, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I have eagerly waited for this time, for this hour, for this meal that we're going to have together. The reason Jesus had desired this time is he's going to reveal to his disciples the very nature of why he came, the whole purpose of him being there with them at this time. What's going to happen in the hours that are going to come ahead? He's going to transform this Passover celebration that Jesus and disciples would have had all their lives, every year, been, had this meal. Transform it. Give it a new interpretation. Give new meaning to the emblems that made up this, this meal. Jesus wasn't 
looking forward to the crucifixion. We know that when we get to the next part of this chapter where they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus agonises, please, Father, take this away from me. He wasn't looking forward to that, but he was looking forward to this meal that he was about to have. Jesus knew this would be his last, the last time that he would have this meal, this Passover meal with his disciples. Ahead of him was unimaginable pain and suffering. But for now, for this hour, for this moment, he was with his closest friends, those who travelled with him over the last three years, enjoying a meal, enjoying a meal that he had been waiting anxiously to enjoy with them. Not anxiously, but eagerly waiting for it. And as he thought of this meal and what he was going to present to his disciples during this meal, his heart welled up as he thought about the meal that was to come into the future. This eternity, this, this messianic feast that would, would be in eternity when he returned. We talked about this last week, this banquet um, in heaven. Revelation 19 this meal that Jesus said, or that, that Jesus is referring to. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Where Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus had this in mind as he came to this final last supper with his disciples. A meal was going to happen in the future where all the disciples, probably except Judas, all the disciples, all those through history had then followed Jesus beyond them were going to be at this meal where Jesus would be with his friends, his family. And that thought, the thought of this meal, sustained Jesus in this crucial hour. It's partly what the writer of Hebrews refers to when he, he writes of Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the cross because he knew he had to do it, but there was joy because he knew this was to come in the future. But right now, there's a meal taking place in the upper room. And the meal gets underway. Unlike the other Gospels, I don't know whether you've picked this up as you sort of think what's happened and recorded in the other Gospels of this event. Um, Luke re- re- talks about two cups instead of the one. There are two cups mentioned in this passage in Luke 22. There's a cup, then there's the bread, and then there's another cup. There's actually four cups in the Passover. This is, Luke's just picking up on the two that Jesus used here in this um, in this passage. And we celebrate communion with one cup. So, so what's, what's going on? What is this extra cup that Luke's kind of thrown into the, into the ceremony? In the prescribed procedures for this Passover cedar, um, there was a cup that took place immediately after the opening prayer that starts the meal off. And this cup is called the fellowship cup. 
And this is the first cup that Luke's referring to here in verse 17. But Jesus broke with the the prescribed way of doing this. This was a cup that every person had their own cup of. So there would have been 13 cups around the table that represented this first cup, the, 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 um, the fellowship cup. And Jesus breaks with tradition and he takes his cup and he passes it around the table for everyone to drink from. Not their own cup, what they normally would have done, but this single cup. Making a statement showing this meal is a meal of community. This is a communal meal. This is why we call it communion. It's coming together. And it's a meal that represents this prophecy in in, uh, Revelation 19 that talks about this messianic messianic, um, meal where everybody together is going to come as one to be at this table. Brothers and sisters from every tribe gathered as one, one in Christ. And so Jesus passes the single cup around the table as the meal is about to start. And then he takes these two other elements of the meal, the bread and the last cup, the final cup of the Passover, and gives them new meanings. Verse 19, and he took the bread and he gave thanks. Sorry, it was there. He took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. According to the cedar, the Passover um, procedures, ritual that they're going through, unleavened bread in this part of the story is the bread of affliction. That's what it's, it's 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 known as. It's a reminder, going back to that first Exodus story, the first account of the people leaving Egypt, that they didn't have time for the bread to rise. It was done quickly. And so the bread was unleavened. It represents the pain, the affliction that they endured as slaves in the land of Egypt. But Jesus takes this bread, this bread of affliction, and says it's now a symbol of the affliction he's going to endure. What he's going to endure, the agony he's going to face in the cross, on the cross. I am the bread of affliction, he's saying. The pain that I'm going through for you. This, um, this statement, I am the bread um, do this in remembrance of me, has a lot of meaning, significance, if we were to pull this apart. We haven't got time to do that in detail today. But this is my body. This, this, this bread represents my body. It's not my body. The Roman Catholics think that it becomes the body of Christ uh, in their doctrine of transubstantiation. It's a mouthful, so we just... Um, it's not what Jesus is saying. It's not, it doesn't become my body. It is, um, he's talking figuratively, just like Jesus talked about, I am the gate, I am the door, I am the, 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 the vine, I am the light. The words given for you, I'm giving my life to you. I'm dying on the cross for your sins. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. This is a, a, a conscious 
memorial, a thing that we, Jesus wants us to do to remember his sacrifice for us. The bread will be this reminder of what he's to do for us. When we go on holidays, many people collect souvenirs. I, I don't know what you collect. In the olden days, also when we were younger, um, people collected teaspoons. I don't know whether they even still do teaspoons. You know, I've seen, no, I'm seeing nodding and shaking. People remember that, but I don't think we, they have teaspoons like they used to. You used to buy racks to put them on, on your, on your wall in your living room. Um, maybe today those souvenirs are things like T-shirts or mugs or fridge magnets. Um, Glenda and I like to collect, we don't do a lot of souvenir hunting, but have something that reminds us that we can use every day that reminds us of where we've been um, on, our, on our travel. And I brought along one of those today. This is a small little jug. Um, we use it for um, syrup for our pancakes. <laughs> it's got a little task. Um, but this was a, um, a place in um, Kilkenny in Ireland where we were at and watched a guy making these. He had beautiful big ones. They wouldn't fit in our suitcase. We travel fairly light. This is the best we could go with. Um, but it just, as soon as we use this, it takes us right back to that little that town in Ireland where we watched the man make this outside the castle gates. Where the same town where we went to a pub one night for our first meal in Ireland. We just come from Dublin. This was a pub meal. Oh, it wasn't probably our first one. It was one of the early ones. But there was a band playing there, a band that was playing Irish folk music. And we were just absorbed by this music, bought their CD, and that CD played the whole way around Ireland in our car. We still listened to their music um, and their new records that we hear about. We download them as well. So this, this little jug has so much meaning for us. It takes us back to another time, another place. Jesus knew that we are prone to forget things. We, needed, we need something to remind us. And so he put this meal in place as a meal to remind us what he was doing for us. This is my body, which is for you. Do this, eat this in remembrance of me. Remember, Jesus is saying, I am your Passover lamb. Remember the sacrifice I'm going to make for you. This bread will remind you every time you eat it. Now there's a chunk of time between verse 19 and the next verse, verse 20. During that time, Jesus and the disciples would have ate the main part of their meal, eaten this roast lamb, the bitter herbs, the fruit compote that, that accompanied the meal. And then they come to the very end of the meal. It ends with a cup, the fourth cup in the Passover celebration. Verse 20. Verse 20. Yeah. Ah. I think I have to get you guys to do this. This doesn't always work. In the same way, after supper, the, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. By calling this cup the new covenant in my blood, Jesus is intentionally making a contrast between the cup of the Old Testament and the cup of the new. The blood shed in the Old Testament 
the blood that's going to be shed in the new, in the new covenant, in the new old covenant, and the blood that's going to be shed in the, in the new covenant. The old covenant was also inaugurated with blood. If you want to hold your place, if you've got a paper Bible, a hard copy Bible, in Luke, and jump across to or back to Exodus chapter 24. I'm just going to pick up a couple of verses out of there. So in Exodus 20 we have the, um, where God gives the, 20, the, the Ten Commandments to Moses and to the people, um, to the Israelites to follow. And the next few verses after Exodus 20, uh, these commandments are explained in, in some more detail. And then in chapter 4 we have the, Moses calling the people together and they declare their commitment to this, this new, for them new, the old covenant, under these Ten Commandments. Um, to, to ratify, and they respond with, with these words in verse 3. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. That's their commitment. God's made this covenant. Everything God wants us to do, we will do, is what, how the people respond in verse 3. And then in verse 5, Moses gathers the people together, um, builds an altar in, at, the, at the foot of this mountain, and says in verse 5, he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it before the people and they responded, everything the Lord has said we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant of the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now commentators believe that this blood wasn't just sprinkled like we might think water being sprinkled onto people. They say the people were doused in blood. They were, they were, buckets were poured over the people as they gathered. Not a pretty picture. But a very vivid picture of what this blood represents, the seriousness of sin. The, 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 um, the, to to emphasise that sin brings death, the death of these animals that have been sacrificed for it. But that old, old covenant had weaknesses. The people said, everything the Lord has said we will do. They could not do that. They could not last a day without breaking one of the laws. There was no way to keep the old covenant until we come to Jesus. In the upper room, Jesus declares this new covenant, inaugurates this new covenant with God, sealed in his blood. His blood paid for so that we could live under this new covenant. So the, um, the meal is not over yet. We can follow on as we go through the rest of, of um, Luke chapter 22. Things continue around the table. Jesus identifies Jesus, uh, Judas as the one who's going to betray him and he heads off to do that. There's bickering going on between the disciples. Who's going to be the greatest among us? And then Jesus then says to Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me before the night's over. But the meal, the meal itself, has now come to an end. 
this meal that Jesus so eagerly wanted to have with his disciples. I am your Passover lamb. I am the blood of affliction given for you. I am the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for your sins. That's what Jesus wanted to say to his disciples over this meal. So let's wrap up by summarising very quickly some of the things that we can take from what this meal is all about. We're going to do this really quickly. We can do this quite in more detail. We're just going to give you the, 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 um, the bones and you can take it away and you can think about it more. First, this meal is an act of remembrance. Passover was a reminder for the Israelites of how God had rescued them from slavery, rescued them from their affliction in Egypt. This is how the Lord's Supper works for us today as well. It's a memorial that reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. Each time we participate in this meal, we're reminded of Jesus. We're reminded of the cross, of what Jesus did for us. Reminded of the price that our sin would cost Jesus. The price was death. The price was eternal separation from God is what our sin is, is, is the cost of our sin. In dying for our place, Jesus made atonement for us. He took our place. He's paid the price. We're free. We're forgiven. We're acquitted of all those things that kept us away from God. So the meal is a, is a, a memorial. It's, it's a tool to help us to remember what Jesus has done. The meal is also an act of community. We've, um, we've seen this as we've been going through these meals, how meals create and, and reinforce community among those who are eating together. We experienced that the other week when we gathered together at the back of, of the um, auditorium here and enjoyed a really good lunch together. Time of eating and, and fellowship and laughter and, and just being together. We get to experience that again next week as we gather in people's homes for these fish meals, fellowship in someone's home. The Lord's Supper declares the death of Jesus, not just by bread and wine, but by the community coming together at the cross. Jesus instituted this meal to help us remember what he had done, but also in sharing it together, it would unite us as a community. We share communion together as a community that's been reconciled at the cross. We've all sinned. We're all destined for eternal death, separation from God. But Christ saved us all, everyone who believes in him. His death frees us all and welcomes all of us into God's family. The family that eats together stays together. This meal is also an act of dependence. Every meal we eat is a reminder of our dependence on God. That's why we give thanks, we say grace, before we eat at home. And the communion meal is the same. Each time we eat the bread, each time we drink the cup, we are reminding ourselves of the dependence we have upon God's grace. Not from anything we could do, 
completely what God has done for us. We live, our sins are forgiven. We're free from bondage of sin. We're free from its deathly grasp on us. Only because of Jesus. And we partake of this meal to remind us that we rely totally on God's grace. The meal is also an act of participation. We don't come to this table and just watch. We don't come to this story and just read about it. We actually involve ourselves in this story. We eat and we drink. If communion was just listening to someone speak, listening to words, we would just be passive hearers of the story. Almost like watching um, the drama of salvation from a distance. Like we might watch 40 at home in our lounge rooms. Um, but put us in a stadium in the middle of the game or take us to a, a live production of a show in the city and the whole experience changes. We are there. We watched the marathon race last night on the Commonwealth Games and it was good to watch. If we were in the crowds, you'd be yelling and screaming. We would be right there. And that's what communion does. It brings us physically to this, this um, story of salvation. We're there. We're part of it. The story becomes our story. By participating, by eating and drinking, the reality of Jesus' sacrifice takes on much more significance for us. The meal is also an act of formation. Communion becomes part of the rhythm of our faith, part of what it means to follow Jesus, becomes who we are. I learned to play the piano as a child and played right through into my late teens. And I learned by practicing the piano every day, most days. Um, learning and relearning. Making it a habit until playing the piano, the notes and the scales and the sharps and all that was just a, a natural part of my, my body, my life. The Lord's Supper is a drama in which we are active participants. And each time we participate, we're retelling the story. We're relearning the story. It's becoming more fresh for us each time we do it. We're learning habits of what it means to be Christ and what it means to be cross-centred, letting the cross become part of who we are. So Jesus eagerly desired to eat this last supper with his disciples. He wanted to say to his disciples, I am your Passover lamb. I am the bread of affliction given for you. I'm the cup of the new covenant. This is my body given for you. This is my blood and the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus gave his all for us that we might be saved, forgiven, freed, rescued from death. He instituted this meal based on the Passover meal to help us remember what he would, had done for us. The meal brings us together as a community, a community of saved ones, each one of us dependent on God's grace. And this morning, 
we get to participate it, actively participate in it again, to become part of this story of salvation as we eat the bread, as we drink from this cup.